Hey, it's Jonah Budd. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. As we get closer and closer to the holiday season, we first speak with senior consultant with the Global Philanthropic Canada, uh, Janine Foster Elmsley, about how charities across our great nation are faring amidst the ongoing economic turmoil. Because all of you know, money only gets you so far, but good people will carry you the distance. We also speak with Michael French, the National Director of the Global HR Consulting Firm, Robert Half. Michael will help us understand this new thing that's going on called employee ghosting. And I guess employers are doing it too. It's affecting so many small businesses that are still struggling to make ends meet due to two years of pandemic measures and skyrocketing inflation. It's a thing, man. Not a good thing. And anyway, we're going to continue our work as well on how to become a guy the greatest you of all time. And then some tips for staying sober over the holidays and still having a real good time. So sit back, relax, chill out, and get ready to listen to the ways we can help you be at your best. Unfortunately, I'm at that age where some of my aunts and uncles are passing away. And and I must say, we're we're blessed. There are many of them passing in their late 80s, early 90s. Anyway, my aunt just passed away. She had many, 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 many years, decades actually of dementia, uh, wasn't living her greatest life for sure. And anyway, passed away, which I think was just a, a blessing for her for sure in terms of putting her at peace. Um, and I attended a family funeral. Now, I got a big family. We used to be somewhat close when we were all younger. Now, not so much. Um, some of my family members are frankly morons. And, you know, and I'm sure they think that of me too, by the way. I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting I'm a prince either, right? But, um, you know, getting there and watching all the fake family, if you know what I mean, if you've been there, right? Love to hear from you, 4877-399-9898. You know what I mean by fake family? They kind of show up and they're like hugging and, oh, how you doing? I haven't seen you in so long. We should get together. We must get together. I hear you on the radio all the time. It sounds like, oh, your kids look great. Your father looks amazing. By the way, I have a 96-year-old father who does look amazing, who just came home from a six-and-a-half-hour wedding that he attended. Uh, and my youngest son took him, so he was at his best for sure, being a good boy. Uh, and, you know, and so... I don't really want to be there. And I'm, and I know, I know these people, I've known them my whole life and I can see that they're not at their best. I can see them not acting, you know, nicely. My mother passed away some eight months ago or so, uh, March of, of, uh, of this year. And, you know, not a lot of them showed up like they should have, you know, to be honest, to be a little judgy, maybe anyway, I digress. So not the greatest family in terms of showing up when they should, but essentially, uh, I was at this funeral and i've been at weddings and had the same thoughts by the way and you know other things when children are born and bar mitzvahs and such which are something we celebrate in our faith when a kid turns 13 a boy and a girl at 12 but going with the anxiety issues i deal with going to that family function but you'll all be proud of me because I held it together. I didn't say anything to anybody. I leaned on one of my sons and I said, I got to go over there and say, I said, dad, just don't go anywhere. Just so I kept my mouth shut. I sucked it up as they say. And I was a good boy. So Yona was at his best for sure. 
and I gave everybody a pass. Not that I'm the judge, but you know what? It just see it's so fake. I just can't stand it. I don't know if it's just me, but love to hear from you. 877-399-9898. Text it or call it. One way or another, we'll get through to one another. So how do you maintain your sobriety over the holidays if you're trying to be at your best and you know that going to mom's house, your grannies or auntie, auntie Sarah's or go hang out with Uncle Bill and the buddies up at, up at the, up at the uh, farm, um, likely everybody's drinking, right? Likely everybody's drinking. And generally speaking, there's at least one or two other family members somewhere in your family that drink to excess and become somewhat obnoxious. And good on you for deciding that this is the year, if not, you've done it before, but maybe this is the year you decide not to drink. And not necessarily because you've got a drinking problem, my friends. Lean in close here, okay? Sometimes, listen closely, sometimes going to these functions where you're already kind of revved up with a whole bunch of anxiety but not really wanting to be there, right? Like, you know what I'm feeling? Like that that nauseating feeling in your stomach, like, oh my gosh, do we got to go do this again? Oh, and this is going to happen. Okay, we have to have a sig- you know signals. We're going to be leaving. I'll, I'll wipe my nose twice, and I'll scratch my ear once, and then you're going to know it's time to leave. Well, you might find yourself guzzling a couple of heavy shots of vodka and maybe smoking a couple of extra joints in the backyard or doing a couple of lines of blow if that's something you do. Hopefully not. These days, it's very dangerous. But if that's your thing, Maybe this is the time of year to not let those situations and people get to you. And if your thing is staying sober because maybe you've made a conscious decision at some point in your life recently or prior that drinking didn't bring out the best in you, alcohol didn't bring out the best in you, not being sober didn't bring out the best in you, and you're trying to do your thing by keeping it clean and sober, as they say. So the best way to do it is, number one, you need to have a plan going in. You have to expect, this is how, this is how, the way I handle my anxiety, by the way, when I'm out in public or going to events or speaking at events or anything like that is I have an exit strategy. I always have an exit strategy. I know where the doors are that I need to leave through. I know the times I can get there and, and, and the times I can leave. I, I, I set myself like a, like almost like a um, surgical surveillance for some kind of really cool SEAL team event or attack which, by the way, I would have always loved to come back as a SEAL team member. I don't want to really hurt anybody, but I love going through the training and doing all the cool stuff. Anyway, I digress. I got a SEAL team plan. I got a plan B for how I'm going to get the heck out of there. And I know someone there is going to trigger me. That's how I, I, I literally, I, I know someone there is going to trigger me. And, and whether, you know, when I say trigger, it's something that causes me to not be at my best. Potentially could cause me to not be at my best if you allow the trigger to actually get pulled, so to speak, using that term, right? So having an exit strategy, being there with someone who else that doesn't drink, one of your cousins, family members, take a buddy with you, girlfriend, boyfriend, buddy, somebody, right? Take somebody with you that, you know, when you give them a a shot on the arm saying, okay, time to go, it's like it's time to go and you're not there by yourself. Some people suggest that you bring things like near beer or non-alcoholic drinks. I think it's, you know, it's just as easy to stand up and say, I'm not drinking today and be okay with that. But whatever, whatever floats your boat, as they say, making sure that you're not hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. There's an acronym called HALT. We never want to be hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Brings out the worst in us in events like that. And just knowing that it's okay to get the hell out of there. I'm sure I think I'm allowed to say that on the air. I think they haven't goosed me yet here. So being able to get out. That's the strategy. How do you do it? You stay sober. 
or you choose not to go at all and you say, you know what, mom, I'm having a brunch at my place tomorrow. Everybody can come by. It's going to be alcohol free, have some amazing food, right? Sometimes the food overcomes the alcohol. If you make it nice enough, you make a really cool brunch. No one's expecting to get loaded. No one's expecting you to serve alcohol at that time of the day. So maybe an alternative to the family gathering or not going at all or going earlier in the morning, going later in the evening or showing up the next day if it's a Christmassy kind of thing we're talking about here. Having the option, a plan B, an exit strategy. And it does, by the way, it doesn't have to be around alcohol. It can just be around the situation that just makes you feel crummy because we don't want to be in situations that make us feel crummy because then we're not at our best and primarily because other people aren't at their best, but that's on them, not on us. We have a guest that's going to join us here in just a minute. What we're talking about is kinds of things to offer that aren't about money. It's basically how young Canadians, young people can give back and how they're doing so. And despite having inconsistent income, and dealing with rising costs of living, younger people, younger Canadians still want to feel as though they're making an impact, doing something, according to Wayne Chi O'Connell. She's the executive director of the PayPal Giving Fund. And they go on, O'Connell goes on to say the desire has changed. The, this desire has changed the way Generation Z and millennials are giving back compared to older generations. So it's a thing. Lots of people are starting to give back. Lots of young people giving back uh, with their time some of their skills, uh, see it a lot in community-based activities where there's an opportunity to give back, right? Uh, something you can do in your community, it's a little easier. So my expert this evening, who's joining us right now, her name is Janine Foster Elmsley. She's the Senior Consultant with Global Philanthropic Canada. And uh, that's an organization that uh, I think is all about helping people give and the ways to give back and so on. Janine, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so is this a thing? Like, is this something that's just started or has it always been a trend for young people to try to donate with time or services rather than money? I think it's, I, I think it's actually just the, the cycle of life, right? When you're, uh, when you're young, you have more time than money. And when you're older, you have more money than time. And that tends to be the way things work. But it's also, um, just starting, you know, this generation, uh, well, even the one just before them, was sort of accused at one time of slacktivism, where, you know, um, being, a, being on a keyboard was going to, you know, change the world. And it's yeah. interesting now that we see an awful lot of, of young people who are just, like, ready to roll up their sleeves and change the world themselves, and, and quite often in tangible ways. And I think that's where you see things like volunteering and, and the giving of items as opposed to maybe cash when, when they're a little, little bit younger. You know, in, um, I didn't know if you know this, but I'm a therapist as well, and I work with a lot of young people. I coach a lot of young people too. You, you know, 13 to 25 is kind of my wheelhouse. And I often talk to them about the way to feel better is by giving back in some way. Um, are you finding that that's the case? And number one, do you believe that? And number oh, two, do I... you, think, you, think, you think young people realize it's a buzz to give? You know what it is? It's very contagious. I don't think I, you know, I've been working in fundraising for 20-plus years, but I don't think I ever thought about it until I made my first gift. And it's, and once you've done it once, it feels so good that you keep doing it, and you give the things that, that matter to you. It's really kind of an expression of, of what's important to you at that time, right? 
Did you just say make your own, you make your first gift? Like you, you went and actually made a gift with your hands or you made a gift by giving cash to somebody? By what giving cash to somebody. When nice. I made, when I made, yeah. When I nice. gave cash, when I, sometimes, uh, it, for me, the first time it was, um, the first homeless person I ever saw was in the U.S. And I just was, I was a child and I was devastated and, and I had taken a certain amount of money down to Florida, and it was all of $1 bills. And I was, like, stuffing his cup with $1 bills. Oh, how old were you? I was about seven. Wow. So yeah. did that continue? Did that? Did you continue? Or for, So the, for three questions there, just because it comes to mind. Number one, did your parents support it, or did they say stay away from him, they're dangerous? And, oh, and no, number they two, supported it. They, they supported it. Number two, now, did you, had you seen your parents give over the yeah. years? Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. and it's actually interesting because there's been studies of of toddlers and watching you know watching how children give, and yeah. they have found that you know if um, first off children are naturally empathetic, and yeah. so they they actually feel other people and they and they want to help. So when they start to, when they've done some of the studies to look at, at children, they can see that you know as toddlers they start giving you know, sharing their, sharing what they've got or something. Um, and then as they get older, they can become um, more aware of it. And there was a study that was done um, in the U.S. that said that uh, if you were to have, uh, if your parents gave, you were 18% more likely to be giving. But if your parents gave and then talked to you about why they give, you're, that, that number increased. Yeah. And yeah. it's a thing I, that's volunteering. Yeah, it's um, a couple of stories. So my, I have two little boys. Two, they're not little; they're grown men now, but they're like thirteen months apart. You know, the Irish twin thing. Um, <laughs> and you know, so we was to kind of do lots of celebrations together and whatever. But you know, they got tons of toys. I mean, and essentially the almost the same kinds of toys, as much as they were a little different, but the same age range. So, and we had a deal, and the deal was that if you're opening new toys, you've got for each one that you open, you've got to give one away. And we started doing that when I were, I don't know, six or seven, and primarily because we didn't have space. We right. didn't have time to. We didn't have time to bring the new. We didn't have enough space to bring in the twos because imagine you're bringing them two by two, right? And that's, right. It's, it's not one up, but one at a time because they're so close. Anyway, to make a long story short. They continue to do stuff and give today, and they remind me all the time. Uh, now my grandchildren are doing the same, but they remind me all the time of you know remembering that they had to give their gifts away. Another story is I was uh, on a trip in the U.S. as well with one of my eldest son. Uh, he was uh, on his way to Tulane University at the time, and we were there together just checking it out. And there was a homeless person on the on the street just outside of McDonald's. I gave him a fifty dollar bill, and my son said to me like, "What are you doing that for?" I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, how do you know he's not going to go use the use it for drugs or alcohol?" I said, "I don't, but that's not my job." My job is to, you know, do what I can to help, right? And of course, he went. I could see him go off to his two children and wife sitting in the in the lobby or outside of the McDonald's. I guess that's what the money was going for. It, I hope. But anyway, he questioned. He questioned. You know, my 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 reasoning for it, um, and you know, being able to explain to him that it's not our job. And people have to understand that when you give money to a homeless person, it's not your job to worry about what they do with it, right? Yeah. You yeah. would you agree? I would. I would very much agree. It's. It's, you know, one of the things that is the definition of philanthropy and the definition of giving is giving away something that you actually want. When you're giving away things that you don't want, you're just moving something out. And um, if you're 
giving away something that you want, then it's then you're doing it for all sorts of reasons, and some of them have to do with the person you're giving it to, and a lot have to do with how that makes you feel. And and this this paternalistic, or I, I don't know how to quite describe it, but it says, you know, well, how do I know they're going to use their money well? How are they going to, you know, how do I know that they're not going to do bad things with it? You exactly. don't. You, yeah. The world does... World does not give you guarantees on anything. So why and, and not, impose it yeah, on you? You know, we're talking uh, we're talking with a guest here about giving, what it's like feels like to give, and teaching your kids to give, and so on. And and I got to tell you, you know, the I remember the first time I did chaplaincy in the prisons. It was a long time ago. I did a decade in the prison system, and the first time I was I did chaplaincy, I remember coming out of the, my first couple of hours and thinking about how incredible I felt. Um, from the experience and thinking that that was kind of weird, you know, like maybe I shouldn't be the one feeling good about the giving and like, is that okay? Cause that's not really, th- it's not really thankless. I kind of thought the concept of giving was for it to kind of be thankless. Right. Anyway, uh, my, uh, my guest here, Janine Foster Elmsley, she's a senior consultant with uh, global philanthropic Janine, going back to you and giving when you were seven and now later on in life being part of the giving world, um, it took me a while. I, I, I searched out uh, some support from uh, some clergy that I work with and some some uh, people that I consider good, you know, good mentors and and wise individuals to make sure that it was OK, that I actually felt good about the giving. Because some people say, you know, if you're making your, you know, if you're feeling if you get your name on the building or you're feeling good about it, it's not really giving to give. It's giving to somehow get. What's your feeling on that? I, it's well, there's no logical, you know, rational reason to give your money away or your time, right? So if you are doing so, it's because hopefully it's something that you believe in. It's some kind of change you want to see made, something that uh, somebody you want to see cared for. And the idea that you may have helped to make that change should feel good. That, That, you know, in the way that you can and with what means you have, you have you have made a dent in something and and you should naturally feel good about that it's not a selfish thing it's um it's it's very altruistic it's the definition of altruism right it's um because if it's something and like we said before the break that you know it has to be something that you actually wanted you wanted that fifty dollars you earned the fifty dollars that you ended up giving away to somebody um but the feeling from that had to have been remarkable because you, they would not have received $50 from somebody on the street. Exactly, right? So i got to let you in on a little secret. You can all get in on this little secret because we're just all one big close family here tonight anyway. Um, so in my life and still today, when I have good fortune, uh, where perhaps I make a bonus on something or I get a signing, uh, some amount of money to sign for something or something I've done. that Anyway, if, if I end up in the sort of an extra payday. I don't know that there's such a thing that there's extra money, but sort of a payday maybe I didn't expect or bigger than I expected. Um, I just kind of find myself, I don't know, you know, Janine, I don't know if it's like feeling guilty, but I go take a couple hundred, I go take a couple hundred bucks and I distribute it in like $20 bills wherever I can with where people I think, you know, could use it. Um, and I, I, I know they feel good about it and I feel good about it too, but it's, like I'm feeling a little guilty maybe at the time. Is that a real thing or, or am I just in my head? <laughs> no, no. There's a lot of people who, who feel a little bit of guilt. But 
mean, there are a lot of people who feel guilty for feeling good about anything, right? But yeah, if this is this is a true. good one if you're going to feel guilty about it because because you made somebody's life a little bit better or an animal or a planet or what have you. So, you know, I I, I would not suggest that anybody who gives money away should feel guilty about feeling good for it. And no one who receives it should feel guilty about receiving it. So and, someone wants... Oh, oh, carry on, I'm sorry. I was saying, it's about how we give, too, that makes that... Makes so, it, the, you know, get that yeah, or. great segue, right? Because, um, God, I, I could talk to you all night. But, the, the great segue. But, so, people will say, yeah, but if you're giving your time, and you're donating your time, or you're at the soup kitchen, or you're helping with, you know, the, 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 the food bank, or at the hospital, the synagogue, the church, the mosque, wherever you are, right? You're helping out. It's yep. not the same as giving cash. They really need the cash. And it's, you know, people would say, well, you've got the money to give. Why are you giving your time? Um, there are other people that say the giving of your time and energy has more value than giving cash. Is there such a thing that one kind of giving is better than the other? No, I wouldn't say that because it's, it is very personal, right? I mean, the giving is um, if you can give your time, then you should. If you can give your talents and your talents are necessary, then you should, and, and you are able to, then you should. But if you need, um, but if you can give cash, you should do that as well. I like, one thing I like to say about giving is that it's incredibly democratic and in that it's a personal amount that you're giving when it's cash. It's a personal amount of time when it's time. And it's based upon what you have available. And it's not about, you know, we're not all going to get our names on buildings, but I think by the time, you know, I leave this earth, I think I will have built enough goodwill in the world because I care a lot about a lot of very different things. And those things are important to me. And whatever I could at the time I gave, whether that was my time or my talent or my treasure. You know, there's a... Um... I'm actively, observantly, you know, whatever the is. But anyway, I'm Jewish. And uh, part of what I learned and part of the way I live my life uh, talks about, uh, you know, there's a percentage of giving, right? And, and most religious organizations, uh, in, you know, in, in somehow in, the, in their scripture, in the Old Testament, New Testament, there's a percentage, I think 10% of tithing or something like that. So there's a 10% number, you know, the giving of the 10% is, is sort of, you know, kind of the, the 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 motivating you know number if that's a real thing but I, I also find that you know people will say the only reason they're giving money is to get the tax receipt and my response is so what so does it matter if the motivation or at least to you does it matter if the motivation is maybe a little bit more material and structured in terms of a tax break versus just out of the goodness of your heart or giving well, is giving. I have found in 20-plus years of working with donors that very few give the tax receipt. They, there are those who consider it and, and make their gifts strategically because of it. But for the most part, they've given because they, there's a cause they want to help. And if you look at the um, every year how many people claim um, their, tax, their charitable tax receipts on their tax return, it'll show that you know Canadians gave X amount of dollars but it never matches what the charities have actually raised. So it shows you that quite a few people, myself included, forget to do it in their tax return. You know, <laughs> they've got those slips of paper everywhere. It's not a, you know, it's not my motivation if I think about it and if I really had my act together, which 
it's a challenge some days. <laughs> I I maybe would be able to get it in my tax return, but the fact that I did it is is not for the tax return. And even on some of the most wealthy individuals, they'll structure their giving for tax purposes, but they're still giving. I love and, that. And you know, there's actually when we were talking about the um, about children and giving, there the part of the study too was to find that when you compel people to give when they have to, they they get less happiness from it. Yeah. <laughs> It feels it feels more it feels more uh, uh, expected or you know or or needed. We listen. We we've only got a, a minute or so left, and I really want to know a little bit uh, more about you and your organization. Can you just give us the the sixty second version of what you do? And um, it sure. sounds like you're just seriously into this. So I wonder. <laughs> well, Global Philanthropic, we're we're across Canada. We are a, a consultancy for fundraising, so we work with charities across Canada. So everything from, you know, the small grassroots to the big institutional fundraisers. And we're, a lot of our work is about uh, making sure they're effective and efficient and that they are able to, um, you know, fundraising is not the core of what any charity does, but it powers it. And we're there to help them uh, power, their, power their mission uh, by ensuring that, they, uh, that they're able to, to raise the funds that they need. And so we work with a lot of different charities. It's it's very very um, fulfilling and impactful because of just the amount of uh, people who are helped. Long way from the seven year old kid that gave a few bucks to someone on the street and a stack of one dollar bills. Here you are, a, a grown woman, I'm sure at least of thirty, and uh, <laughs> oh, and and, and have been doing <laughs> have been doing this for some time, and uh, clearly still getting a real. Uh, a real buzz from the work and, and I can hear it in your voice and, and all I can say is, you know, you should continue to have blessings and good luck to continue to do the work that you do. And thanks for joining us and perhaps get you back on here to talk about some other sides of this giving uh, story. But uh, I am talking to Janine Foster Elmsley, senior consultant with global philanthropic here in Canada and uh, clearly someone who's made giving a living as they say, boy, that just rhymes. You know, how accurate is your, mental health uh, information that you're getting on uh, places, uh, sites like TikTok and Instagram and uh, Facebook for that matter. And, you know, some, many, many experts say that there's an advantage to being on those networks on those platforms because some conversation is better than no conversation. Right. So of those that use um, that are mental health related um, postings and such, it can be hugely beneficial for some people. But for some, it can be very misleading. The information can be very misleading and causes people to make decisions that may be not in their best interest. I had a patient client that uh, I'm not supposed to call them patients, but they're sick people, but we're supposed to call them clients. Anyway, I work people I'm working with, excuse me, <clears throat> who um, decided that based on information they learned online, decided to take medication that they probably shouldn't have. So the end result was, they were taking medication, they ended up making them quite sick. They ended up going to emerge and they were taking uh, lithium for what they thought was border, what they thought was uh, um, some form of manic depression or uh, bipolar disorder. Anyway, that's not at all what was going on. It was more of a thyroid thing. And long story, we don't need to get to that. But the, so the, the concept is that we're, what we're talking about tonight is, is this information accurate? And, and to what extent can you rely on it? Right. So let me tell you something based on, let me show you some, talk some data here uh, to glean some insight. There's a team called plush care. Uh, they're a, a research organization. They analyzed 500 TikTok videos 
that included the hashtag mental health tips, hashtag mental health advice, those types of hashtags with medically trained professionals, then assessing the recommendations and advice for accuracy and the potential risk. Okay. So 87, 83.7% of mental health advice on TikTok is misleading. While 14.2% of the videos include content that could be potentially dangerous or damaging. 9% of those advising on the platform had a relevant qualification in the response in the respective field. And 54, 54% of the advice contained some accurate information. 31% of the videos contained inaccurate information. So it, the information we're getting, even if it looks like it's put up by a quote-unquote professional, we'll probably have a whole conversation about what that means, right? So almost one in five U.S. adults live in a mental health condition of some sort. And the videos are either 83% misleading, 54% accurate advice, and 31.4% inaccurate advice, right? When it comes to potentially damaging advice, 14.2% of the videos provided that. People with qualifications were in 9.9% of the videos with some kind of disclaimer, 1%, and uh, miscellaneous 1%. I'm not sure what the miscellaneous is. These are based on social media reaches of 24 million. 988,114 people. And of that, of those views, 3,596,386,000 liked it. And that produced 43,404,463 total followers. 43 million people paying attention to advice that we believe, based on this study, may not be very accurate, may not be what you're looking for, may be somewhat misleading. And, and the conditions that they're the most, most misleading about, so in the attention deficit uh, hyperactive disorder, ADHD, 100% were misleading videos. Bipolar disorder, BPD, or borderline personality disorder, not sure what the, the designation, but they both count, 94.1% of the videos are misleading. Depression, videos about depression, 90% are misleading. Videos about anxiety, 89% are misleading. General mental health, you know, general stuff, miscellaneous, I don't know what general mental health is, but whatever, miscellaneous misleading videos in general terms, 81%. And videos about trauma are misleading 69.2% of the time. So, you know, scientific accuracy of advice, 54% of it is usually pretty accurate. 12% is potentially damaging because it's inaccurate. And 31.4% is highly inaccurate. So uh, I can tell you that based on ADHD, 54% is accurate. 27.27% is inaccurate. The bottom line is that the percentage, the majority of information that are provided to people about mental health issues and illness are not accurate when seen on, in particular, TikTok, because that's where the study was done. I have no issues with TikTok. I think it's a great platform when used properly. I would say that about all of them. I think they're great platforms when used properly. I think when you don't use it properly, it can be dangerous and, and very misleading. So 91% of the people that are quote-unquote influencers around mental health, right, 90, almost 91% have no qualifications. So how do you know the difference between good and bad? Good information and bad information. How do you so-called the, the term is how do you vet the mental health advice? How do you know it's how do you sift through it? How do you filter it? 
right? Pay attention to me here, right? I want to make sure you're paying attention out there. And my buddies, William, Derek, and Kate out in Calgary, make sure that they're paying attention. Ray and Della and Beast in Winnipeg, I'm sure you're still awake. Pay attention to this stuff because I know there's people in your lives that I want to give it away because it's, you know, there are people in your lives that are getting this kind of information maybe not to their best in their best interest. So what are the creator's qualifications? You got to know where the information comes from. Garbage in, garbage out, right? If you remember that term going back a few years, if the information you're receiving is coming from someone who isn't capable, qualified, or knows, what's their qualification? How do you inspire somebody uh, to think about something? Sometimes it can be a lived experience. So say that my qualifications are 20 years as a sober individual or 20 years living with mental health issues and you know, don't pretend to be something you're not. You know, sometimes expertise doesn't come with a piece of paper. It comes with sweat and tears and years of learning how to do it better, sometimes yourself, sometimes with others. So how does it make your body feel? Is the information you're receiving and reading, does it make you feel a little creepy? Like, because good quality mental health advice isn't intended to make you squirm and feel lousy. So depending on who's providing the information, how it's scripted, how the messaging is laid out, so to speak, big word these days, messaging, right? How the messaging is laid out these days will make a difference in terms of how you feel. And if you're not feeling somewhat helped or encouraged or somewhat hopeful, you're not reading the right information because you can get the same scientific information from people who will inspire you to fight through whatever it is you think you may have, or in fact, might actually have as a diagnosis. There is no magic pill for a lot of things, my friends. There's no magic solution for certain things that haunt us, certain mental health issues. You can take all the medication in the world. You get to a place of numbness, but that's not healthy mental health. That's just a place of, you know, not paying attention to it, trying to numb yourself out. And for many, many people, that's the way to go because the pain is so bad. The discomfort is so difficult to manage on a daily basis. But we're looking for information that's helpful to help you be at your best. These are people perhaps that aren't at their best. They're trying to sell you something maybe. Or maybe they feel better giving you some information and advice that comes from others that they didn't vet or make sure was accurate and legit, so to speak. So the other thing is, who else is talking about this stuff? If suddenly you came up with, you know, you found some cure to some horrible disease online, but no one else is talking about it. No one else has ever heard about it. One would think it might not have the merit, might not have the strength or the reality or the, the goodness behind it that you'd hope it would. And the other thing is, is it generalizing or emphasizing some particular diagnosis over some symptoms? Is it pretending to be treatment? Because none of those things, if the answer to all of that is yes, none of those things are what we're looking for in legitimate, supportive material. So careful. Sometimes it can be inspiring and helpful and give you some hope. And I love that. But make sure you're not leaning on someone who's giving you advice and, and giving you some sign of, of light at the end of the tunnel that might not be so attainable, might not be quite as real as you think it is, right? So just, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If it's coming from a good place, it probably has value. If it's not, maybe it doesn't. We have to make sure that when you're setting your goals, remember last week we talked about goal setting, having to have a goal. It's part of our 10-part series. And this week we're going to talk about um, aiming high. So six strategic ways to aim high. Set your goals for a high return, right? Set your goals so that you're able to get 
the most out of it that you can, right? So that at the end of the day, you're able to achieve what it is you've set your sights on, right? And that's the whole idea is to aim for something that you think is going to be achievable and give you the opportunity to um, do the best you can knowing that you've got some kind of plan. So learning to aim high is ideal for anyone who's got some kind of ambition or is trying to win big or become a champion, or in this case, a guy out, the greatest you of all time. So we'd like to hear from you if you got some texting or you want to give us a call, 877-399-9898. We want to make sure that uh, you're uh, with us here and understand that um, the goal, I want to hear from you, I want to understand what your goals are. How do you achieve them? Send us a text message. Give us a call. How do you achieve your goals, or how do you set your how do you set your uh, your sights? Right. So why you should strategically aim high, because aiming low just is falling. It's just not worth it, right? It's like and and failing. If you're if you're just aiming low and you're just not you know it's not motivating to hit your targets. It just doesn't seem to mo you know to to get the the juices flowing to get you to where you need to be to you know you need to get to. Excuse me. So six six strategic ways to aim high and achieve your goals. You know, you have to think of it as a plan. Everything you do has some kind of plan, right? So in order to achieve your plan, we have to make sure that what we're talking about here is de developing some small micro habits. What's a small micro habit, right? What's, what's, what, what is a micro habit? It's something that you can rely on and it, it's a, something that you can repeat over and over again, right? So something little. So perhaps getting up in the morning and having a little bit of a stretch, making yourself a healthy breakfast, those kinds of things might be the way that you can uh, find yourself uh, beginning to make changes in your life, right? Um, you know, not not really, you know, it, it's the little things, right? Getting up a little bit earlier, making sure you've got more time, slowing your life down a little bit. Just these are little, little things that you can do right away, right? And... Um, so exactly, um, you know, it gives me exactly, it gives you exactly what you need to do and you know that you're getting there, right? So th the way we start with is these micro habits, little things, getting up a little early in the morning, having a better breakfast, making time for yourself so you're not, you know, you're not rushing, right? Executing on your daily tasks, creating a, a, a day, you know, what, what a, a task is, right? Um, so understanding what your tasks are, you know, you understand what I'm saying? So have daily tasks and you do them all the time. Um, right makes all the difference in the world. So if you know if you know what you're what you're uh, what you're doing here, right? Like if you have a plan every day for your tasks, you know that every day you got to get up and do the same things during the day daytime and the afternoon, do the same same things, right? You have to know uh, what those little tasks are, and you try to achieve them. You knock them off one at a time. Very important that you have the same routine. Champions have the same routine um, all the time, right? You understand what I'm saying? So the same routine, the repeatable routine is, uh, is, is, what we're, is what we're looking for, exactly what we're looking for. So you want to repeat the same routine, the goodness, you know, over and over and over again. Eventually it becomes part of your natural memory. It's why, how your body and your, and your system constantly react to that, right? So it's exactly, it's exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about repeated positive performance. And then tracking your progress in the long term making sure that what you're doing is sustainable, the goals that you have, the sites that you set for yourself, making sure they're achievable, making sure it's something that you can track. So some researchers say it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert on something, right? You know what I'm saying to you? 
it'll just give you it'll just give you uh it'll just give you something some 10,000 hours they say gives you some level of expertise in something for some people it's less some people it's more it depends right lots of scholars disagree with that number right some considered amount of time like if you're becoming a chef or you're becoming a a plumber there's something called red seal which is a, a, a level of achievement right you want to make sure you achieve those hours you got to do so by making sure you've got enough hours in to do that, right? So you need to to become an expert at something. If you, that's your goal is to become expert at something, requires you know thousands of hours of activity and to continue with your self improvement, right? So making sure that you that you you know that you that you stay about um, you know being around your like you know for example in my in my days of when I was boxing, you know, I, I was constantly trying to shadow box in the mirrors when I, in the windows, when I walked by a store or I was moving on the street and kind of boxing my arms around, you know, Tiger Woods and his self-improvement stories talked about getting up in the morning. He'd run for four miles, go to the gym, lift weights, then he'd have a hell of a breakfast and then, you know, hit golf balls for two or three hours, then go play around the golf, then concentrate on his short game, you know, the, the short shots to the, to the, to the hole, so to speak. Right. Lots and lots of training, lots and lots of good practice, continued good practice of the things you're trying to achieve. So if what you're trying to achieve are better study habits or better work habits, the way to improve those is by doing them over and over and over again. And eventually you have an accumulation of what are called small successes. So aiming high succeeding and, and succeeding, excuse me, starts with being able to take the first step, accomplishing little victories. I tell this to my clients, my patients all the time. You need to celebrate your successes on a daily basis, right? Meaning that if something good happens to you today, then keep track of it and draw from that in the future when you don't think you have the strength to do that. I, I ask my, 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 my clients and my patients to keep something called a success journal. Only keep track of the things you did today that were good, that you achieved, that you won, that you can pat yourself on the back for. We spend far too much time, my friends, pay attention here, we spend far too much time not knowing if, in fact, we're succeeding or not because we don't pass our, pat ourselves on the back. We only go to, we spend most of our time talking to ourselves with something called negative self-talk. We talk to ourselves about our, our, our failures, the things we couldn't have done better. Oh, I could have done that differently. Wish I had a chance to do that over again. Oh, man, I would have done that so differently if I would have had the chance to do that again, right? Well, takeovers game over, you know, it's hard to to get a to get a takeover or what they call in golf a mulligan, a, a another shot, right? So celebrate your successes. Because if you don't keep track of them, you're going to get yourself hung up on the things that you don't do well. And every time you try something new and you're afraid to do it because you're not sure that this is a trait for you or this is a a habit that you think you can do because you might not be successful at it, draw from the most recent success you had. I tell people, close your eyes and imagine the most recent success you had in your life, whatever that was, however small, however big, it's irrelevant. The way to overcome the negative thinking around trying to set goals and becoming a, the greatest you of all time, the way to get around that is by having the same conversation in your own head with yourself about the greatness, about the wonderful things you've achieved by all the great work you've done and all the, the little successes that at the end of the day add up. One little thing every day at the end of the week can be seven good things, new things. At the end of the month, that's 30. That's a lot. 
Can you imagine if I was to say, I want you to change 30 things about you or, or establish 30 new things or 30 habits that are good or 30 times do the same thing over and over again, you'd say to yourself, wow, that's daunting. But if I said one a day, yeah, I, I can do that. We can all do that, right? can all find one a day. We can all find the time one a day. And if we add up all the one a days, at the end of it, you get all this success. And drawing from that success is how you get over that icky feeling of, I don't think I can do it. Sure you can. And you know what? If you don't try, you're not going to know for sure if you can or you can't. And by the way, what's the worst that's going to happen? The worst that's going to happen is perhaps you don't succeed. Okay, we can deal with that. We can deal with not succeeding every time. You know, we'll succeed next time. Part of the learning, part of the growing is the doing, my friends. And if we don't do because we're afraid, we don't get to where we need to get to. And if we don't get to where we need to get to, then the whole purpose of trying to be the greatest you of all time or being at your best kind of goes for naught. So what I'm suggesting is build those habits, repeat those habits, know that you can do it. Know that you can do it because I believe you can do it. And I believe that you believe you can do it. And then we'll talk about some more next week around the same stuff. I've got a guest coming up here. Uh, and what we're going to talk about is uh, something called ghosting in business. And, you know, we all know what ghosting is. If you've got teenagers or you're, you're at that age where you're on social media or whatever, and people don't call you back or write you back or show up when they're supposed to online and, you know, suddenly they don't do that for 15 minutes and now you're 15 year old, I'm being ghosted and they're ready like to jump off a building, God forbid, right? So it, ghosting in business is a different story. So, although I, I bet there's a lot of owners out there, small business owners that have that same feeling of maybe wanting to jump off the top of their building, God forbid, right? So, you know, it, it's a big deal. And let me tell you my personal experience. I'm in the middle of hiring an executive assistant for my program called recoverinhome.com. It's a, it's a pretty um, active business. We we see a lot of patients, a lot of a lot of clients. We have a ton of people working with us as therapists, and we're constantly interviewing. And I got to tell you, it's it's a it's a thing now where half the people that are supposed to show up for a virtual interview, just like online, you don't even have to get on a bus or get in your car or walk over, they just don't show up. And it's like, what do you mean they don't show up? It's a twenty-five to thirty-dollar an hour gig. You can do it from home. It's easy peasy. Nobody wants to work, and if they want to work, they certainly don't seem to want to work for me. So I'm talking to a guy right now. His name is uh, uh, Michael French. He's the national director of Robert Half, and that's a global human resources consulting firm. And we're going to talk with him about this article that says new hires are ghosting small businesses already under pressure from labor shortages. And a new report from the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses found that in the last 12 months, more than one third of small businesses surveyed have hired people who either never showed up, stopped going to work shortly after they started. I heard about somebody who showed up took a lunch break, never came back, and or had a job candidate who's just stopped responding in the in the interview process. Like suddenly you're not hearing back as to when they want to interview, if they want to interview, and so on. Michael French, what the hey is going on, bro? Yona, thanks for having me on. And I got to tell you, this is, this is crazy. But it's not just happening to small business owners. They're feeling it really bad. It's happening to everyone as well. It's happening to job seekers being done by the business. Oh, so, so we, that. yeah, it's, it's, I tell you, it's happening everywhere right. and it is fairly new. It's not something that's been going on for a really long time, but actually we've been seeing it for a while. So we survey hiring companies, hiring managers and job seekers all the time. 
And so we're asking, like, what's going on out there? And, and like, you're right. We, we hear often that job seekers just don't show up for their interview. That was sort of the number one complaint from hiring managers. And then they say, well, they're also taking the offer. They take my offer. Exactly. And I never, I never hear back from them. Yeah. Yeah. I expect them to show up on Monday and just like nine ten, there's like a no show. Well, and then it, it's just, it's, you know, you use the term crazy. You got to be careful because I'm also a therapist, but um, they, you know, it, it is, it is certainly ab- abnormal to say the least. And in, in, it's actually almost impossible for businesses, big, small or otherwise to, to, to try to structure growth. So how do you get around that? What's up with that? That, that is a real, real challenge. So how are you going to be able to grow your business if you can't find people? And you were coming out of a time now, if you were trying to grow your business, it used to be businesses were held back by a lack of capital. And that was a story for a very long time. Right. But now for the last 10, 15 years, we're held back by the lack of, of skilled people. And right. now we've been talking about this demand for talent for a while. I think we've got to stand back. Like the war for talent, the war for talent is over. We have to realize talent won and businesses have to adapt to what the talent is looking for and how they want to move forward. If you're still trying to interview and hire the way you did five, 10, 15, or how your, your parents did it 25 years ago, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. And, okay, and so, so 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 rather than you know, we, obviously we have limited time, but with with without getting into like a complicated discussion, give me an idea of of what you know three easy things that you know if someone's out there as an employer, what should they be doing differently than what their grandfather did? One of the first things you need to do is streamline your hiring process. You know, we, you, you talked about virtual. Many organizations still want to do a face to face interview for the first time, yep. so streamline it. I mean, if there's multiple people, have them on, on the uh, interview, make them quick. If there's gonna be two interviews, one one day, maybe one the next day. So make it very easy, make it fast. Second, make if, you, if you're making an offer, start with your very best offer. You have right. to assume every single job seeker is gonna be fielding multiple offers. If your plan is, well, they're looking for X, let's offer them X less 2000, you're gonna lose. You're going to lose. They won't even look at your offer. Make your very, very best offer. And the third thing you have to do is in the interview process, close to an actual timeline of next steps and then commit to that timeline. What we hear from job seekers many times is that they're being ghosted as well as they're contacting, whether it be the HR or the manager or the owner, they're not getting told where they are in the process. And it could be, well, we'll let you know when we have an, up, have an update or have some news. Uh, but job seekers have lots going on. They're looking for almost a daily update of what's happening because the job right. market's moving that fast. So in that interview process, make sure you're saying, okay, you know what, today's Friday at, at, uh, at three o'clock or four o'clock. We'll let you know Monday by noon if there's an offer or we'll let you know next steps. So make sure you're closing next steps and then commit to them. Even if you don't have an update, still commit to giving them sort of, sorry, no news right now, but we'll get back to you tomorrow. Someone told me, uh, i got a couple of minutes left here before we go to break. Someone told me that the average the average job, like the uh, for an admin assistant, let's say you're hiring the, you know, the average job in an office, an admin assistant, um, and that used to be a 35 in, back in the day, not so long ago, three, four years ago, actually. I was at like a $35,000, $38,000 entry position. I'm told that today that's a $50,000 job and still no one wants to show up. 
Unfortunately, Yona, that's not $50,000. It's probably $55,000 or $58,000. And that just gets the conversation going. But when you think about it, how are you going to live, whether you're living in Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, how are you going to live on $38,000? Especially when you're paying $20,000 a year to go to university. Yeah. So the, the economics now have to work out. And when you look at when you go to the grocery store, my goodness, uh, the price of lettuce now, the, the price of fuel, everything's going up. And it's uh, we, we've been enjoying very low inflation for a, a number of years. This is something that's crept up on us. No one saw it coming. And right. now we're dealing with the fallout. So this is something that we're not really used to. So as wages have gone up, so is everything else. And you're having to adjust. The big problem is companies haven't planned for this and it wasn't in the budgets. And we're not used to this. We're not used to having to raise these salaries so often so much. Michael French, he is uh, the national director of a company called Robert Half, a global human resources consulting firm, and just generally a pretty smart guy. Uh, Robert, let's continue. uh, I'm sorry, Michael, let's continue to uh, have this conversation about the ghosting. So that's what we're talking about, why people don't continue to follow up from interviews and perhaps why companies aren't keeping the interviewee in the process long enough to kind of actually try to win them over. Um, Companies, if companies improve their benefit packages, and, and and sort of the perks. Is that part of what gets people back, Michael? Or is it just, you know, like at what point are the interviewees saying, you know, I'm going to make this choice and not that choice? And what can you do to entice them? You know what? Benefits have become or have always been a really big piece. So there's, there's that. Look at the total rewards. The salary is a huge component of it. But we also tell job seekers, look beyond the money. So you go from the salary, then you go to the benefits. Is it a big package? Does it have everything, dental, eyeglass, uh, all the drugs, everything included? And then look beyond, what are the perks? Is there flexible schedule, which is probably the hottest thing right now? People want flexibility. And many, many employers are losing job seekers because they just don't offer flexibility. And when it comes down to it, they really could. They're just sort of, well, it's not how we've done business in the past. We want to stay the old way. If you were to offer flexibility, you'll attract a much larger group of candidates. I'm not even talking about sort of remote working. I'm talking maybe even windowed. Maybe it's eight to four, nine to five, uh, 10 to six. Do you care if a person's got a weekday off and takes uh, works on a weekend? If I'm sitting back as an employer and I am an employer and you're saying, you know, change this, allow different shifts and so on. It's really starting to sound like. You know, there are a lot of people out there saying to themselves, hey, you know, I just don't feel like I've uh, like doesn't seem right. It seems like the, 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 the candidates running the, the, the interview, not me. Is that a is that a takeaway for an employer to kind of feel uncomfortable that, you know, they're not in control? And is control even something you can expect these days in a healthy interview? That's a really interesting word, control. Uh, I think you have to look at it a little bit differently. I wouldn't look at it as being control. I look at it as being what you're offering is flexibility and some freedom in exchange for results and performance. It used to be, well, here's where you're going to sit. Here's when you're going to work. And here is how and why and what you're going to do. Now we're more interested in, here's what I'm looking for out of you. Here's what I need out of you. I need you to figure out best times to do it in most situations. Now, if you're running a, a store or a business where you have to be a certain time and place. That's a little bit different. But in the professional world, measure the results. But when you do that, there's a level of trust here that maybe wasn't always there. But you know what? We Two years or two years ago, we went to COVID. We went from being in the office to working from home. 
and we thought the whole thing's going to fall apart. Little did we realize that, my goodness, we seem to do very, very well. We trusted our people. Yeah, there are some people, though, Michael, that would say that uh, being in the office, uh, and I'm not sure I'm on the, I don't disagree with them at some level, being in the office, at least for part of your work week, uh, being in the office is more conducive, a lot of people would say, to, you know, cooperation, to collegial work, to sharing ideas, to touch and feel, all that stuff that you just can't get necessarily from a virtual experience. Uh, Believe it or don't? I believe it. I believe there's some people who will thrive and do more work when they're at home, but then they will do possibly new and better work when they are in the office and they collaborate with their colleagues. Um, And there's some people who love being in the office. So you you have all of those, but somewhere in there is the right mix for every organization. Turn the clock back, maybe 20 years, uh, um, everybody had their own office before. Then they invested in these great big bullpens, open concept, pods. I can tell you, I went from being in an office to having a pod. I love having my pod, open open concept, talk to everybody, collaborate really easy. I I loved it. it. Hated it. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so like I loved it. And you know what? We got a lot done. Yesterday, I was with a a group on a table. We were trying to troubleshoot a a challenge that we were having. And we within minutes, we had a great solution that we may not have had had we all been remote. But because we were in person, and one in person, one person was remote. We still got to the got the solution. We're flexible now, and I got to tell ask, you, great things get done. Let me ask you something here, buddy. Um, is there any ramification? You hire somebody, come in for a job. You you do all the pro- paperwork. You bring them in. You get them all their security clearance and everything they need. They come to work, and then the next day they don't show up. Does the company? I mean, I know you're not an employment lawyer, but does the company have any kind of cause to? claim anything back and how do you get back your work materials and all that stuff if somebody just suddenly starts to ghost you you got about a minute or so to answer that one for me so that does happen i am not a lawyer i i, I do not know and i can never advise a client on what to do we say you know talk to your hr and your legal teams um it does happen i rarely hear of companies not being able to get back their equipment um but I'm sure it does happen. Uh, best thing to do is though, is in the process, talk about what else they have going on in their job seeking uh, strategy. Where else are they applying? Where else are they interviewing? Know what you're up against and be honest with them. Let them know how many other people that you're interviewing for the role. That way you have a much higher success rate of them actually accepting, showing up and being diligent in that position and excel in excelling. Okay, real quick, we've got some time here to continue to talk. I want to know more about Robert Half. Tell me about that organization. Haven't heard of you before. Give us uh, the 30-second commercial. We've been around for nearly 75 years. We started um, in New York City by a guy named Bob Half, who made permanent placements for for professionals in accounting and finance. And that then spun off into contracts and finance, admin, tech, legal, creative, digital, um, many different professional areas. And now we're all around the world helping companies find the talent they need just when they need it, perm and contract. So the old days we'd call you a headhunter? You know what? That's the old days. <laughs> that term still gets uh, tossed around now, but essentially, yeah, it's a big part of our business. You know, we help clients with both perm and contract. Amazing. And what's your background, just briefly? So I've been with Robert Half for over over twenty years. Um, I've actually I started in the Toronto office and in a group that was uh, working with clients placing contract accounting professionals. And so that would be accounts payable, accounts payable, bookkeepers, staff accountants, analysts. And over the years, I've worked in a number of our offices, and now I have a national role with Robert Half. I love it. 
Well done. Well done. So is this a Canadian thing, Brady, or is this a worldwide thing? This, this ghosting stuff. It's a global. It's, hap- it's happening around the world. It's happening around the world. Well, it's interesting. Uh, back six months ago, we were hearing about quiet quitting. That wasn't necessarily yeah. happening in Canada. That was more, let's say, south of the border. What we're talking about now with ghosting, it's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. The job market's hot. Candidates have options. And you know what? Maybe we don't communicate like we used to. Maybe a simple email saying, hey, thank you for meeting me. Unfortunately, I'll take something else is all we really need to do if right. you don't, if you aren't brave enough to have a face-to-face conversation or over the phone. But even a simple email would let let the employers know you made another choice. You know, my mother used to say to me, and uh, may she rest in peace, she used to say to me, you know, don't make a mess because you never know when you're going to walk back and step through it. And, you know, I, I, I explain this, try to explain this to young people that I have in my practice and try to explain to them when they're going out. Like, if you're not going to take the job, you don't want to take the job, you're going to move, you, you know, decided to do something else, you changed your mind, you had an argument with your mom, whatever, call the employer back and say, hey, you know, um, love the opportunity. Thank you. It's just not going to work for me right now. Can we check? Can I check back in in a little time? Or if you, if you find you could use me down the road please give me a call just leaving that door open um we're not doing so much of that anymore are we just got a few minutes left or a few seconds left here no you know what and that's what we have to do that would be ideal next best thing would be an email worst thing is to disappear and ghost but that that conversation that your mom talked about that's crucial that is crucial does it come around though does it does it come around to 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 beat you up at some point does it uh in, in terms of, uh, you know, like if the things you don't do, does it does it eventually come around and uh, and smack you in the face in another interview down the road there? It comes around really fast. Sure does, Much yeah. faster than anybody ever expects. You know what? As, as big as Canada is and these cities are huge, they're actually small and never, ever burn a bridge. There never, ever burn a bridge. Well, we're talking to uh, to Michael French. He is the national director of Robert Half, which is a global uh, re- human resource company. And uh, clearly they're on top of these kinds of trends and so on. Um, I imagine you have the same problem when you're trying to recruit for people. You're getting ghosted too as an organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's happening everywhere. 